I really do appreciate the opportunity to come here. I've, the only other time I've stood behind this pulpit was for a funeral, so I'm uh, feeling a little different. <laughs> Although about six weeks ago, I had a heart attack, and I almost ended up in a, having a funeral for me. And I'll tell you, when, when uh, you have a heart attack, and they say you came within minutes of death, it changes your perspective on things. It really does, particularly when you're not even 50 yet, so you got to go figure that out. But anyway, uh, I just want to thank you again for letting me uh, uh, take a minute. I, what Brad asked me to do is he said, well, you know, I, I just finished one book, and now I'm going into another, so I won't be there tonight. So you got, you got to give them something that's, that, that you, can, you can do in one shot, because that's all you get. So, you know, and I know you're big into apologetics, now, he asked if, if you know what an apologist is. Uh, the word apologia or apologia in Greek means to answer. And what it is, is it's someone who works hard at studying the science of how to answer for the Christian faith. And I'm a doctoral candidate for a uh, uh, doctorate in apologetics. That's what I'm working on. It'll be another couple years before you can call me Dr. Marks. But in the meantime, I'm, I'm doing a lot of study and I'm writing a lot of papers and doing that sort of thing. Uh, I got the opportunity to write a book called Someone's Making a Monkey Out of You. You can uh, find that online if you want to look that up. And uh, what I thought I'd do is I thought I would, I would start tonight by telling a little story. And the story goes like this. Once upon a time, there was a dark Lord. And the dark Lord was vain and full of himself and, uh, you know, thought he was all that in a bag of chips and everything else. And... Uh, there were two swindlers that uh, took the opportunity. Let me go to the next slide on that one. There, there was a, there was a, there was a, two swindlers that took an opportunity to try to get as much money out of the Dark Lord as they possibly could. So they told him that they were going to make a new suit for him, and it was made out of this incredible material. And this material was so beautiful and so marvelous that only the wisest, only the smartest and only the most influential people can see it. So as they're dressing the Dark Lord, and they're talking about how beautiful this fabric is and how wonderful it is, of course, the Dark Lord can't see it. And neither can any of his ministers, and neither can any of the people. But nobody's willing to say that they can't see it because they would look stupid. Because after all, only the wisest the most intellectual. Those are the only ones that can actually see this material. So lo and behold, as the, uh, the Dark Lord is walking through the streets in his new suit, there's a little child standing there going, but he's naked. <laughs> and somebody, your know, mother's trying to shush him up and, and he keeps yelling, but he's naked. And, and, and of course, Nobody wants to admit the truth. The dark Lord felt foolish because he knew in his heart that he was naked, but he wouldn't admit it because it would mean that he wasn't the wisest, he wasn't the most intellectual, he wasn't the smartest. So instead what he did is he sent intellectuals out into his uh, kingdom and their job was to tell anyone and everyone who would dare to say that the Dark Lord was actually naked, 
They were commanded to go out and say that those people are stupid. Those people are uneducated. Those people are fanatics. And that is the story of the theory of evolution. That is the story of the theory of evolution. What we're going to do tonight, we're going to talk a little bit about Genesis. Normally, I also go through the Bible chapter by chapter and verse by verse. And tonight, we're going to go through exactly five verses of the book of Genesis, because that's all the time I'm going to have. There's just too much in there. It's just too packed in. But we've got to have a little bit of background in order to understand what these verses really mean. Because there are so many people today that are worried, they're fearful. You see it on Facebook, you see it in social media. They, they are terrified of looking stupid or looking foolish or uneducated or unintellectual to somehow say that we should be able to take the book of Genesis at face value. You know, they're afraid of doing that. Even in evangelical circles, even in seminaries, even in graduate education, there are plenty of seminaries out there that will teach you that Adam and Eve were actually mythological figures, that the flood of Noah was only a local thing. It wasn't as actually what the Bible described, and that the first 11 chapters of Genesis are just mythology. In fact, there's a, a best-selling number one New York Times bestseller called Understanding Your Bible, written by Adam Hamilton, who is a pastor of a megachurch. 20,000 people go to his church. 20,000. He has a master in divinity, and he is one of the people that comes out in very strong terms coming after people like me who have the audacity to say that the Dark Lord is wearing no clothes. Because we are unintellectual morons to say such a thing. And, you know, and you'll, you'll find this also when you're, when you're working with um, professors from you know, Arizona State or wherever it is that we're working, that you know, they'll tell you, you can have your religion, that's fine, that's a personal thing. But when it comes to facts, when it comes to science, we know as the intellectuals, that all of that is just mythology. All, everything that you read in the book of Genesis is just a myth. And unfortunately, the word science itself has become almost godlike. Science says, therefore, it must be truth. How many of you have run into that kind of an attitude somewhere down the line? Or am I the only one that's run into that? Okay, as an apologist, I've run into that many, many times, particularly on college campuses when you're trying to talk with people, they, they want to dismiss you out of hand simply because you believe that God created the heavens and the earth the way it says in Genesis 1.1. Because we all know that science says that there really is no God, or if there is a God, there is this natural process over multiplied millions of years that basically went from goo to you. You know, over time, it just, just wait long enough. We got goo, we will get you eventually. You know, that, that's the base. That's science. That's what science says. Well, the first thing we need to understand is that science doesn't say anything. That's a logical fallacy. That's a personification. You're taking the word science and you're, ma you're making it into something that has an intelligence or it has a consciousness. Science doesn't say anything. It's scientists who say things. 
the word science itself only means knowledge. That's what the word translated means. It means what we know. It's facts. Telling it like it is. But not all scientists are in lockstep. Not all scientists will say that the book of Genesis is pure mythology. Because the truth of the matter is, is that all facts require interpretation. All facts require interpretation. Some people want to say, well, the facts speak for themselves. No, the facts don't speak at all. They are just facts. They're just knowledge, bits and pieces of knowledge. You have to take those and you have to put them in some kind of order. And in order to put, the, you know, in order to put things into order, you have to have something, you have to have a framework, a, a way to interpret. For example, your pastor and I, we interpret the Bible literally. We have a framework, we have a system, a way of looking at the Bible, and from that framework, we take the verses, we put it into the framework, and it comes out the other side. We have to interpret things. We have rules for interpretation. It's called hermeneutics. It's, it's, it's a lot like wearing a pair of glasses. If, if I put on a pair of glasses that are green-tinted, well, then everything I see is going to look green. And if I take them off and I put on blue, everything's going to look blue. And if, if, I'm, if, I, if I'm wearing blue glasses and I'm, talking to, uh, and I'm talking to you about blue, but you're wearing green, you don't get what I'm talking about. We, we are missing each other. So we have got to start. We have to get back to what is the framework? What, what is the way to interpret scientific facts? That's called a worldview. Now, there are basically two worldviews. There is the worldview that every, of, of what we call naturalism. Everything is guided and directed by natural laws. Okay, that is a worldview. And so I'm going to take all the, the facts that I see and I'm going to filter them through the framework of naturalism and I'm going to come to a certain conclusion. Okay, that's not the facts speaking for themselves. That's my interpretation. Okay, and my interpretation is based on the a priori assumption of naturalism. Okay, well, there's a whole other worldview. It's a biblical worldview. It believes that, there, that the theistic God exists, that he has revealed himself to us through the Bible. And from that, I take the facts, I filter it through that worldview, and I'm going to come to a completely different conclusion. So the facts are exactly the same. We see the same fossil evidence. We see the same biochemistry. We see the same philosophy. We see the same physics, but we have different colored glasses on. So when you're dealing with people and you're talking in terms of apologetics, the first thing you have to do is correct which set of glasses that we're looking through. That's the first thing you got to do. Now, what I want to do, I obviously don't have time to go through everything I would like to go through uh, tonight. Uh, you know, in fact, what, what I'm doing is the introduction to a 16-week series. So um, if Brett really wants me to come back for 15 more weeks, I'll be happy to, but you'll have to let him know. Maybe he wants a break. I don't know. We'll see. But the first thing I want you to do is that, uh, understand is that not all scientists, you know, when, when you feel that intimidation coming down the line that, that science says or all scientists say that naturalism is true and it, and it makes you, you concerned about what you, what you read in Genesis chapter 1 through 11. I want you to understand first and foremost that not all scientists believe this. There are plenty of real scientists 
that have a biblical worldview. I'm going to give you a few examples uh, on this next slide. This is, uh, on the left, is Dr. Henry Morris. Dr. Henry Morris wrote a book uh, in 1961 called The Genesis Flood. It literally turned the scientific world upside down. It created the creationist revolution. Um, right next to him is my mentor and friend, Dr. Gish, who died just a few years ago. Dr. Dwayne Gish wrote a book called Evolution, the Fossils Say No, in which he went through. Now, he was a biochemist from Berkeley, PhD in biochemistry, so he's a real scientist. He worked for 20 years for the Upjohn Company, and he, uh, as a real scientist, went and studied every single transitional form, supposed transitional form between all of the major species, and he concluded that the fossils say no to the theory of evolution. There are no transitional forms. And whatever few transitional forms that they have grabbed, he's destroyed them. He showed that they are not uh, in a transitional state in any, in any way. Uh, next to him, you'll see Dr. Stephen Myers, who has a PhD uh, from Cambridge. Uh, he wrote a book called Signature in the Cells, one I highly recommend, although it's 800 pages long, so be prepared. Um, now, Dr. Meyer has gone through in terms of biochemistry and has proven beyond any reasonable doubt that life could not have come from a random source. He's proven that scientifically. Right next to him is Dr. Michael Behe, a PhD from the University of Pennsylvania. He wrote a book called Darwin's Black Box, another book I recommend highly. And in it, he went through, and again, the same as Dr. Myers, went through and showed from a biochemical point of view that evolution could not have taken place. Now, I'm going to read a couple of quotes from these men just to kind of get started. This is the intro. Okay, here's the, next, the first quote. This is from Dr. Morris. He wrote this. 200 years of systematic fossil collecting with billions of fossils now known, yet all of the supposed evolutionary links are still missing links. In fact, Dr. Gish used to say there's a missing chain. Not a missing link, missing chain. Anyway, the laws of science demonstrate that evolution is impossible, and the fossil record demonstrates that it never occurred, even if it were possible. Now, Dr. Myers put it in different terms. He wasn't so interested in the fossil record, because the fossil record is so incomplete that even paleontologists and geologists who promote evolution, they constantly come back to say, well, yes, we know that the fossils that we found in the rocks do not show evolution. We know that, but we're going to plead that the uh, fossil record is so incomplete that you can't get a full picture of it. So Dr. Meyer went a completely different direction, and he said, all right, well, let's ignore fossils. Let's take a look at the biochemistry. What does it take to go from basic chemistry to the simplest life form? What would it take to create that? What would, it, what, what would happen? Here's his quote. In the face of the enormous complexity that modern biochemistry has uncovered in the cell, the scientific community is paralyzed. No one at Harvard University, no one at the National Institutes of Health, no member of the National Academy of Sciences, no Nobel Prize winner, no one at all can give a detailed account of how the cilium or vision or blood clotting or any complex biochemical process might have developed in a Darwinian fashion. 
Now that's pretty compelling. And he goes on to say, life on earth at its most fundamental level, in its most critical components, is the product of intelligent activity. The conclusion of intelligent design flows naturally from the data itself, not from sacred books or sectarian belief. Inferring that biochemical systems were designed by an intelligent agent is a humdrum process that requires no new principles of logic or science. So he's coming to the conclusion after studying this, after 800 pages of going through the information, that what we find in the cell, what we find for the basic uh, uh, building blocks of life, when we look at life itself, all life is based on DNA. If you've seen enough CSI episodes, you know what DNA is. DNA is the stuff that you leave at the crime scene. Okay, that's why you won't get away with it. We all know this, right? Because your DNA is unique to you. I'm glad we have CSI because it, 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 it makes it so much easier to explain what's going on. Now, the DNA in your body, deoxyribonucleic acid, what it is, is it is a code. Now, it's not just any kind of code. It is the kind of code that is so complex that your DNA reads one direction to code for one kind of protein, and the very same code, if you read it backwards, will code for a completely different protein. So you have it coding one way and the other way. You have codes within codes. Now, we do not find that kind of complex, specified information anywhere except coming from an intelligent mind. That is the only place it has ever been seen. There is no scientific experiment in the history of science that has ever shown complex, specified, coded information coming from a random source. So you can take all of the chemistry in the world. You can mix it in your test tube for 100 trillion years. You will never, ever, ever get complex, specified, coded information. And yet it's in every cell in your body. Now, when you look at that, you can only come to one conclusion. There is only one source where we have ever found that kind of information coming from, an intelligent source. So the first key that we need to get, and this is just the basics, the first key that we need to get is that there is no scientific or philosophical reason that you cannot accept Genesis as a real account of real history. We need to start there. We need to begin when you pick up your Bible and you flip it open and you go to Genesis chapter one, verse one, you are reading a real account of real history. And there is no scientific or philosophical reason that you should be intimidated into thinking that your Bible is anything less than real history. Somebody say amen to that. Okay, because this, you know, if, if you can trust the very first verse of the Bible, then you can trust the rest of it. There are 1,189 chapters in the Bible, and you can trust that every single one of them was inspired by the living God right from the beginning. There's no such thing as mythology in God's word. Now, if you want to get more details on this, and again, I can't give you everything I'd love to give you tonight. If you want to get some more details, here's some books that I would recommend. Yes, I'll go ahead and give a shameless plug for my own book. Someone's making a monkey out of you. You can remember that. Say it with me. Someone's making a monkey out of you. There you go. Okay, you can go find it at Amazon, and uh, uh, you can get that if you like. There's also the Modern Creation Trilogy uh, by Dr. Morris. 
Signature in the Cell, of course, we just mentioned that one, and Darwin's Black Box. That's where the quote came from. By the way, I was mistaken. It was Behe's quote I just read, not Myers. I got another Myers quote later. So let's flip, let's get into the word itself. Flip over to 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 3, and we're going to take a look there before we go to Genesis. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 3. Peter's giving us a warning here, and I'm reading from the New Living Translation right now. It says, first, I want to remind you that in the last days, there will be scoffers who will laugh at the truth, and they'll do every evil thing they desire. And this will be their argument. Well, Jesus promised to come back, did he? Then where is he? Why, as far back as anyone can remember, everything has remained exactly the same since the world was first created. They deliberately forget that God made the heavens by the word of his command, and he brought the earth up from the water and surrounded it with, with water. Then he used the water to destroy the world with a mighty flood. So Peter is warning us that in the last days, how many of you know these are the last days? Do you all know that? If you don't know that, well, I know we are closer to the last days now than we were yesterday. <laughs> so I guarantee you we're getting there, okay? And we will be closer tomorrow if we get there. Unless the Lord calls for us, in which case I get a new body with hair and everything works. It's going to be awesome. Okay, it's going to be great. And we don't have to worry about this stuff anymore. But anyway, it says they willfully forget. Now let's take a look at those words in Greek. They willfully, they're willfully forget or they're willingly ignorant. In Greek, it's lethano, lanthano. And what that means is to escape notice or to be hidden from. So what they do is they allow the truth to escape their notice, okay? They hide from the truth willingly. They deliberately or willingly refuse to see the obvious. Now, like I just said, you can take all the chemistry in the world and you can mix it for a million years, a trillion years. You will never get DNA, never. It cannot happen because your DNA has coded specified information. Now, why will you never get DNA? Because they tell you that it just happened in some warm little pond somewhere a billion and a half years ago, right? And that's where you came from. There was the goo. Now there's you. Okay, and, and, and they believe this. But let's look at it scientifically. Now, when you look at DNA, DNA itself is made up of amino acids and nucleotides and phosphates and sugars and things like this, okay? But the amino acids are what's really important. All of the amino acids in your DNA are going to be left-handed. Now, what does that mean? In nature, amino acids exist in 50-50 ratios of left-handed to right-handed. They're mirror images of each other when they float around in nature. When you eat them out of... Out of uh, vegetable material and you get amino acids into your system, they are in left and right-handed varieties and they're attached to one another. But your DNA uses left-handed exclusively. It's called optical purity. So when you look at that double helix strand, which I should have given you a, a slide on this, they're all left-handed, three billion of them. Now, what are the chances that you could get 
just by random chemistry, just by mixing it up, if you took amino acids, 50-50 chance on each one of them, mix them all up, and you're going to get a chain, a polypeptide chain, where every single one of them are left-handed. What are the chances? Well, they're not good. <laughs> Somebody decided to go and check. And he discovered that the chances are about one chance in 10 to the 147,000th power. Now, that is a one with 147,000 zeros going that direction. That's a rather large number since there's only 10 to the 18th uh, seconds in 30 billion years. Do you see the problem? Even if you had one random trial every second for 30 billion years, every second, 24 hours a day, seven days a week for 30 billion years, you wouldn't even get close to that number. And that's just for one DNA. And you don't need one. You need a lot. So when you look at those kind of odds, I'm not playing on that, that, that table. I'm sorry. I'm not throwing those dice, but it's worse. You see those DNA you know, they have a problem. It's called oxygen. And it's, they have another problem. It's called uh, ultraviolet light coming from the sun. So in other words, if, if I'm mixing in my test tube and there's any kind of oxygen, it's going to break down any kind of polypeptide chain that mixes in any, in any kind of sequence. Any kind of chain is going to be broken down in the presence of oxygen. How many of you know there's about 21% oxygen in your atmosphere right now? And if you go back in geology, we cannot find any time in the history of the earth where there was not anywhere between 18 to 21% oxygen in our atmosphere. So oxygen was always present. It would break down your, any DNA that was built by random chance. But not only that, ultraviolet rays would also break it down. So between those two, even if you could achieve those odds, you still wouldn't make DNA because it would all break down. Now, if it all breaks down, how can any kind of natural selection happen so that you would end up going from goo to you? It cannot happen. It had to have been built by somebody who's a lot smarter than you. It had to be. There's no other way to explain it. In fact, Dr. Myers says that to try to understand this, he said, imagine taking some dice, taking a couple of pair of dice, and I want you to roll the dice, and I want you to pretend that you can somehow roll 777 sevens in a row. Now, and the dice are not loaded, by the way. By, by random chance, can you roll 777 times and get seven every time without a loaded pair of dice? Now, everybody knows you can't do that, but he said, yeah, but I'm going to make it worse. I'm going to make your dice out of white and dark chocolate. So start rolling. Because he said, every time you mix your chemistry to try to get DNA, ultraviolet light and oxygen are breaking it down, just like the warmth in your hand would be melting the chocolate every time you rolled it. Could you ever do this? No, because by the time you got to the fifth or sixth roll, you wouldn't even be able to read the dice. In other words, it's simply not possible. Now, in real science, you can go talk to Dr. Wolfram about this, who's got two PhDs. But anyway, there is such a thing as the impossibility threshold. When the probability exceeds 1 times 10 to the 50th or greater, it is considered literally impossible cannot happen. And what did I say those odds were? 
a little bit higher than one times 10 to the 50th. So when we look at this and it says they willingly forget, he's warning us that people will look at this information and they will completely disregard it simply because they don't want to see it. No, 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 no. I don't want to see it. But that's, that's real science. I'm not making this stuff up. Now, Peter warns us not to deliberately forget what God has done, not to forget Genesis. In fact, Jesus said this in John 5, 46. He said, if you believed Moses, you'd believe me. What did Moses write first? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. See, if you would believe what Moses said, well, then you'd believe me too because he wrote about me. But if you do not believe his writing, now he did not say, now I, I, I love, you know, I, I sometimes read this and I misquote it just to see if people are paying attention. I'll say, but if you do not believe everything you wrote except Genesis 1 through 11, and then everybody goes, well, wait a minute, that's not what it says. No, that's not what it says. Look what it says. It says very clearly that if you do not believe his writings, all of them, well, then how are you going to believe my words? Jesus is throwing out the challenge. So let's take a look at Genesis 1.1. Let's break it down. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The first word we're going to look at is God. In Hebrew, the word God is Elohim. Elohim. Now, Elohim in Hebrew has an I am ending. Do you see that there? Now, an I am ending is a plural ending, but this has a singular meaning. It's in the singular, and yet it has a plural meaning. And this was an issue for Hebraists for many, many years, but of course, they wrote it because that's how Moses wrote it down. In other words, this is your first hint at the Trinity. It's God is one, and yet he is more than one. So you have a singular word with a plural ending, but it's not plural. Nobody could figure it out back then because it was a mystery. And the Trinity is still a mystery to this day. But that's the first reference to it. So we have God. Now, which God are we talking about? We have the God who is one and yet more than one at the same time. That's what we're talking about. Now, what did God do? It says that God created. The next word here is bara. Bara in Hebrew means to create out of nothing. To create out of nothing. Now, this is really interesting because the world's greatest physicist today believe in something called the Big Bang. How many of you have heard of the Big Bang? Yes? No? Okay, good. It's called Big Bang Cosmology. It's taught in every 10th grade biology class. I know because I used to be the 10th grade biology teacher that all of you did not want to have. Okay, but anyway, uh, I've done that. I've got the t-shirt and I will never go back. But anyway, uh, so, so, but I, you know, we, we taught the Big Bang Cosmology. Well, what is the Big Bang Cosmology? Stephen Hawkins, Albert Einstein, all of these guys. What, what, what did they conclude? Einstein in particular. What they concluded is, is that the evidence in the universe, when we look out into astronomy, you know, Einstein, for example, how many of you have heard of his famous equation, E equals MC squared? Now, this is what he's doing in E equals MC squared. It's a big mathematical way of proving the first law of thermodynamics. And we'll get back to that in a second. But what he basically did for about 15 years is he cheated. 
Einstein cheated in his calculations, not that particular calculation, but in others, because he did not want to admit what was right in front of him. What was right in front of him is the universe cannot be eternal. And he didn't like that conclusion. Because if the universe is not eternal, that means it came from nothing. Now, how do you explain this? Einstein didn't like it, but after a while, other scientists were looking at his equations and going, hey, you're, you're fudging things here. You're using irrational numbers. You can't do that. And you know, Stephen Hawkins has done the same thing, using irrational numbers, because they, they don't want to admit the truth. But finally, after Hubble discovered what's called redshift in starlight, they began to face the truth that the universe had to have had a beginning. The universe is expanding outward, and it's expanding just faster, which would pull it all back in, right? So what they've discovered is that the universe had to come from a central point, a singularity. Where did that come from? Nothing. So first, there was absolutely nothing. No time, no space, no matter, no natural laws, no mathematics, nothing. Now, you can't even get your mind wrapped around nothing, can you? Because in your mind, you got a little picture of some blackness. Okay, black is something. No, we're talking about nothing. Then it exploded into everything. Big bang. I mean, just bang. There it was. Absolutely everything. All the matter in the universe exploded from nothing. Yeah, the world's greatest physicists admit that that's what the scientific evidence says. First, there was absolutely nothing. And then for no reason that we can you know, figure out, for no trigger, because remember, there's nothing. So there's no trigger. How can you explode if there's nothing to explode? But all of a sudden, out of nothing came everything. Now, the first law of thermodynamics says that the amount of energy in the universe is a constant. In other words, when that bang went off, all of the energy that has ever existed, existed instantaneously. And it's, there's no more coming, popping out of nowhere. Just what we have is what we got. Does that make sense? That's the first law of thermodynamics. So you had absolutely, positively nothing. And then there was a big bang that created everything, space, time, matter, the laws of physics, you know, the laws of electromagnets, uh, the, uh, the, uh, the strong and weak nuclear force, the, uh, all of the forces that, that we know about in, in physics, all of that came from absolutely nothing for absolutely no reason. Or you can believe that there is a God who is absolutely eternal. He has no beginning. He has no end. He is the ultimate cause of all other causes. He has always existed. He will always exist. He will never change. He has all power and all knowledge. And he said, let there be light. And bang, there it was. Now, which one fits the facts? They both do. Either there was absolutely nothing and it exploded into everything, or there is God who said, let there be light, and everything exploded into existence out of nothing instantaneously. And lo and behold, the Bible says right there at the beginning that God created everything out 
of nothing. Now let's talk about what everything actually is for a second. Because again, when we look at the Bible, now when you look at other religions, you look at Buddhism, you look at Hinduism, you look at the Egyptian religions, you look at Babylonian religions, you look at whatever, they always, ex- they always start with pre-existing material. The Hindus say that the universe is eternal, but we know from scientific fact that it's not eternal. Okay, but all the other religions start with something, and then there's gods that do this and do that. Only the Bible starts with absolutely nothing. In the beginning, God. And he created, bara, out of nothing, everything. And you know what? It fits what we see in science. It fits what we see in physics. No other religion can make that claim, but we can. And that that book was written a long time before there were physicists, a long time before Einstein, a long time before anybody understood any of these concepts. And yet it fits what the greatest minds say right now. So let's take a look also at something fascinating. The second verse says that God said, let there be light, correct? Okay, so God said, let there be light. Why did he start there? Well, when we look at light, light is the visible, what you can see, the visible spectrum of electromagnetic energy. When you look at energy, there is a wide range. We have everything from X-rays and gamma rays on this side to, you know, to light that you can, visible light spectrum that you can see. So we have this wide range. That's electromagnetism. Now, why is that important? Because if I look at this podium, for example, this podium is made of a material. Well, what material? I'm not exactly, I think this is wood. Is that wood? Yeah. Okay, but whether it's wood or plastic or whatever, if we keep going down smaller and smaller and smaller, we get to its components, which is protons, neutrons, and electrons. Protons, neutrons, and electrons, what are they? Energy. In other words, everything, everything from the ground beneath your feet to the air that you breathe to this podium, everything is made of electromagnetic energy. And the Bible says the first thing God created was electromagnetic energy. Hmm. Right from the beginning, it fits physics. In fact, if I take one of the, the protons out of this podium, and if I was to blow up the proton to the size of a basketball, the nearest electron would be 3,000 miles away. In other words, most of everything that we know as solid material is actually empty space. So once again, if I took this proton and I blew it up to the size of a basketball, the nearest electron would be 3,000 miles away. It's mostly empty space. What creates what we know as solid is that electromagnetic energy between protons, neutrons, and electrons creates a force which we can feel this way when it's all put together, but it's actually all a function of energy. That's what physics tells us. And lo and behold, the Bible says the very first thing that God created was light. And that fits physics. Now, one of the things that we need to understand about electromagnetic energy is that its usefulness only goes so far. Now, let me be clear on this. Right at the middle, right at the beginning of the Big Bang, all of the energy that has ever existed or will ever exist came into existence instantly. No new energy is popping into existence out of nothing anywhere. It's a constant. That's the first law of thermodynamics. The second law of thermodynamics, now this is the most demonstrated law in all of science. 
The second law of thermodynamics explains that entropy will always increase. Now, what does that mean? It means that when energy changes forms in some way, some of that energy will be lost in the form of heat. That's why it's thermodynamics, heat uh, transfer. So when I lose some of that energy, that means that over time, that energy is no longer going to be useful to anybody for any reason, for anything. In other words, the entire universe is slowly breaking down and burning out. And eventually it will all be cold. It will all stop. The energy will no longer be useful. It's called the second law of thermodynamics. Now, when we look out and we see the second law, it proves that the universe had to have started from absolutely nothing. That's what it proves. And it proves that if somebody doesn't wind up the clock again, it's going to eventually burn out. Okay, that's the second law. Now, here he says that God created. Now, what did he create? Started with light, but it says he created the heavens and the earth. Let's take a look at those two words. Heavens is shamayim. In uh, Hebrew, it means space, not stars. It means the actual space. God took it, and according to this scripture and others like it, he spread it out. And what do we see when we study physics and astronomy? The universe is expanding everywhere we look. There's a red shift in every star we look, almost every star we look at, because they are expanding away from us. It's exactly what we find in physics. It says he created the earth, Eretz. In Hebrew, means material, ground or land. And so what he's talking about is he's saying that God created light. He created space. He created matter. Space, matter, and time in the beginning. The space, matter, time universe was created by God out of nothing in the beginning. And notice that no other religion claims right from the very beginning verses the very same things that we see in physics. Because physics says that the Big Bang, space, matter, and time all came into existence out of nothing. And lo and behold, it's been sitting in the Hebrew scriptures for the last 4,000 years. In the beginning, God created what? Space, matter, and time. Right there. Now, what does that mean? It means that if God created everything out of nothing... Miracles must be possible because the greatest miracle has already taken place. So people want to discount the Bible. They want to, they want to say, well, you know, I can't believe in the Bible because it's got miracles in it. Well, look, if, if you understand the existence of the theistic God, miracles must be possible because I just explained that something out of nothing is quite a miracle. It's the ultimate miracle. If God can create things out of nothing, then he can do anything he wants. Okay? There are more than 250 miracles in the Bible. These are miracles that when we look at them, they are creating out of nothing, raising the dead, walking on water, changing water into wine, because he can. Because he can. Because if God can create the heavens and the earth, then he can do all of those other things too. And again, that should build your faith. You should look at that and go, yeah, that makes sense to me. And not be worried about the critics that will come back and say that, well, it couldn't be true that Lazarus was raised from the dead. Why not? If God can create protons, neutrons, and electrons and tell them what to do, then he could say to Laz, come on, boy, come on out of there. We got stuff to do, pal. And he's going to say it to you 
and me someday. He's going to say it again. He's going to say, come on out of there. Now, miracles must be possible. Now, why? Because you can't get something from nothing. Nothing cannot create anything. Nothing ever could. Sounds like a song. You heard that song? Sound of music? Okay. Nothing cannot create anything. You know why? Because nothing's not even a thing. So it can't do, it can't think, it can't create. Nothing cannot create anything. There has to be a cause. And when we look at the law of cause and effect, for every effect, you have to have an adequate cause. Cause, effect, cause, effect, cause, effect. Anybody can understand this concept. You cannot have an effect without an adequate cause. But how far back can this chain go? Well, it can't go back forever because if it went back forever, first of all, you would be transversing the infinity, which you can't do mathematically. But anyway, that's a whole other issue. But the point is you can't go back forever because if you went back forever, you would be grounded in nothing and nothing can't create anything. You must have a cause that is uncaused. The foundation of the entire law of, chain, of cause and effect has to have an uncaused cause. And lo and behold, the Bible says he has no beginning. He has no end. He owes his creation to nothing because he's not created. Are you following me? Now, let's get into this in a little bit more detail because I want to give you a little bit uh, more science to, to kind of back this up. Now, we're going to talk a little bit about life for a second, life itself, because in the book of Genesis, obviously, he creates life as well. Now, I want to talk a little bit more about the odds that life could come about by any random chance. These two guys here, this is Sir Fred Hoyle on the left and Chandra Wickramasinghe on the right. Now, Sir Fred Hoyle is from Cambridge. He was knighted. That's why he's Sir Fred Hoyle. He invented the steady state theory and then disproved his own theory because he did not want the universe to be eternal. So he tried to create the steady state theory. It doesn't work. And so he had to write another book. This book is called Evolution from Space. He wrote it with Chandra, and the reason he did is because he realized that evolution is absolutely impossible. So it must have happened somewhere else and been seeded here by space aliens. It's the only thing he could come up with. This is Cambridge... Very smart people, you know, I mean, you got Chandra right there, PhD in math, and, and a second PhD in astrophysics. They're not Christians. But look what they said. They said, the likelihood of the spontaneous formation of life from inanimate matter is one to a number with 40,000 knots, 40,000 zeros after it. That's the odds. It is big enough to bury Darwin <laughs> and the whole theory of evolution. There was no primeval soup, neither on this planet nor on any other. And if the beginning of life were not random, there must therefore have been the product of purposeful intelligence. In short, there is not a shred of obje objective evidence to support the hypothesis that life began in an organic soup here on this earth. These guys are really, really smart. They don't want to admit God. They are not Christians. But they're also not intellectual cowards. And they're willing to stand up and face those kind of odds. Now, let me talk about those odds for a second. 
That number went one with, with 40,000 zeros behind it. If I, if I had a one the size of my finger, it would be zeros the size of my hand right here that would go that way for about a kilometer. That's how big the number is. Now, to give you an idea of what are the odds, if I could take a proton and mark it with a red X, pretty small, right? And I was to take all of the protons in the entire universe, that's 10 to the 80th. That's a one with 80 zeros behind it. Take all of those protons, mix them, mix them up real good. Now, if you can pick that proton on the first try, blindfolded, four times in a row, you'll almost reach that number. In other words, the odds are about the same that you could run a tornado through a junkyard and get a 747 perfectly ready to take off. <laughs> That's the odds that life could come about by any kind of random chemistry. So let's take a look at it again. Genesis 1, 1 through 5. Let's read through it real fast. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And then God said, let there be electromagnetic energy, light. And there was light, and God saw the light that it was good, and God divided the light from the darkness, and God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. So the evening and the morning were the first day. That's a very interesting phrase. The evening and the morning were the first day. Now, if you read this through, you realize the sun and the moon and the stars were not created until the fourth day. So people get upset with this. And they go, wait a minute, how can you have an evening and a morning in the first day? And so when you don't even have the sun, and how could, you know, plants were created on the third day and you don't have the sun until the fourth. And, you know, how do you get those? You know, they want to make these questions all the time, but they're missing something because the clue is right there, right in front of them. Now, it says the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the deep. Now, I want to look at that word hovering. It's only used three times in the Old Testament. Here's the word in Hebrew. It's rechaf. I got to get the ch in there, rechaf. Okay, my Hebrew teacher would be upset with me, rechaf. Okay, but anyway, it means to move, to shake, or to flutter. It's the idea of this of rapid back and forth motion. It's, it's, in fact, it's referring to like a hen hovering over her chicks. And that is very interesting because when you look at uh, electromagnetic energy, it comes in waves that do what? Flutter. They go back and forth. In other words, what he's saying here is that God began a vibration of energy that moved throughout what he was creating. It energized what he was creating. It caused a flutter. It caused these waves. In other words, what God did is he created this initial light. He created this initial system and he put his own energy into it and he literally spun it like a piece of clay on a potter's wheel. Literally spun it in motion. It's still spinning to this day. And when he spun it around, he began to separate it out by his command into all the things that he wanted to make. Electromagnetic energy. You cannot have, you know, when you look at ocean waves, for example, well, they're caused by wind. When you look at sound waves, well, they're caused by vibrations from these instruments that cause the molecules in the air to vibrate, which goes to your ear. 
It's all vibrations. It's all flutters. It's all the same thing. Now, I want to focus for a second. I'm going to close with this because I know I'm running long, and I apologize. What time is it? Did I go really long? It's not too bad. Some people are saying keep going. Other people are saying shut up. I don't know which it is. You know, I, I'll just keep going and ask for your forgiveness later. Hey, I just want to close. I want to focus in on this word here, this, this beautiful word to hover right there at the beginning in, in Genesis, rahaf, to, to move or to shake or to flutter. You're going to find a similar word in, in the Septuagint, which is the, a Greek translation of the Bible. This word in Greek is ferro. And ferro means the same thing, and you're going to find it in this verse, 2 Peter 1.21. It says, for prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were rechaf, move. Ferro, move, fluttered over. Same exact word. Is that cool or what? What he's saying here, and this is so important, is the same way that God energized his creation, built the universe out of nothing, took this amazing electromagnetic uh, spinning wheel and created everything that you know and see and smell and taste and touch. He used the same kind of energy to energize the prophets to give you his revelation, his word. I started this by saying you do not need to be intimidated by a scientific elite that says you cannot trust your Bible because science says. I just showed you that everything in the first five verses of Genesis matches up with real science perfectly. And the same God who said, let there be light is the same God who said, I'm going to reveal to my creation who I am, what I've done, their relationship with me, how they should respond to me. In fact, it says in 2 Peter, I'm sorry, 2 Timothy, verse 3, verse 16, it says, all scripture is given by, and it's the same word, Pharaoh, Rehaf, inspiration, God. It's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for a correction, for instruction and in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. In other words, my friends, I want, to know, I want you to know how much I love you. I truly do. I don't know any of you. Well, I know them. <laughs> but when Brett said, come and speak, I thought to myself, I really want to because I love you. I've never met you. But I love you. And I want to encourage you. Every time Brett gets up here to speak, he is speaking the words of God. These are not just good ideas. These are not just nice little axioms to help you live better. This is the rehaf of the Holy Spirit. The same power that moved and created the heavens and the earth, moved on the men of God to write the very words, and it can cut you right to the marrow. Do not take it anything less than the most serious thing you've ever done in all your life 
when it comes to God's word. In fact, that's the last key, and that's where I'll I'll close here. Hebrews 4.12 says this. The word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. It pierces even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow. And it is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. And that's what I wanted to give you. If, If you missed all the science, that's okay. But hopefully what you got is that you can trust your Bible. Hopefully what you got is that the words that that you are hearing every Sunday morning, every Wednesday night here, those words are the same power that created the heavens and the earth. And that's the last key. That's what we'll close with. The reason you need to build a very high view of your Bible is because it is energized by the creative genius of God himself. It's the only source for direction in life that you really need. Let's pray. Let's pray about that. Holy Father, we call upon you in the name of Yeshua, Jesus. We call upon you because you are the beginning. You are the end. You are the first. You are the last. It was you who thought all of this up in your head. The reason we exist is because you will it. And you created us with a freedom of will of all the creatures in the universe. We alone created in your image to freely choose or reject you. Lord God, we call upon you and I pray that if there is someone in this room and you've been intimidated by science, so-called You've been afraid. I pray for that person. I pray that you encourage them this moment that there are real answers, real science out there that can demonstrate that your word is absolutely trustworthy 100%. I pray you encourage that person. I pray you challenge them to go and read these books and get down there and get deeper. And I, I pray, Lord God, that you help us to take this truth out to our friends, to our neighbors, to our family. I pray that you help us to be faithful to studying your word, to knowing it inside and out. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.